earlier, uh, Psalm 126. Now, Psalm 126, most commentators, scholars think, was quite a late psalm in Israel's history. It's part of the Old Testament. Okay, the Old Testament, the Bible, as in before Jesus, and talking about the people of Israel, the Jews, and the, the Psalms, a collection of, sort of songs or poems, are often telling the story about what God's done in their lives, thanking God, singing praise to him, all of that sort of thing. And Psalm 126 is quite a late psalm, post-exile. Okay, now what that means, as I'm going to tell very quickly, the story uh, of Israel running up to their post-exile period. So you can probably start the story of the Israelite nation with a guy called Abraham. Many of you have probably heard of Abraham. So Abraham was called to leave uh, his own country and family and go, he didn't quite know where, but with promises from God that he would make him a great nation in what became known as the promised land, obviously. Uh, Abraham wandered around uh, in a nomadic lifestyle, as did his ancestors, until his grandson Jacob, still nomadic, wandering around, waiting for the promises to be fulfilled, uh, goes to live in Egypt because of a famine in the land. There's a 400-year period where the Israelites, uh, as they become Jacob, becomes known as Israel, they become known as Israelites, they live in Egypt and they never get back to the Promised Land for 400 odd years and by that point they're now slaves in Egypt and some of the best known stories of the Old Testament and Moses with God's power and the ten plagues and the rest of it, leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. Or at least Joshua, his servant, leads them into the Promised Land and they fight and take the land from the inhabitants that were then there. And they begin to live out, if you like, these promises that God had given them all the 400 years or more before in the days of Abraham. And it must have been exciting times then. They're finally there. They're finally in the promised land, beginning to establish the nation that God has been promising to them all this time and that they've been seeking, having spent 400 years in slavery. They're free and it's all happening. The nation grows and eventually they set up uh, a, a kingdom. They start establishing kings. The first king Saul wasn't very good, but they kept going. King David came on the scene. Seen. He was a good king. That's David and Goliath. And the nation is flying now. The enemies have been subdued. The nation's been established. The good times are rolling. David's son Solomon is literally the golden age. You read some of the passages in Chronicles telling about him and everything's golden. And the iron was not worth anything and stuff because there was so much gold and bronze about it. It was such a rich nation. Other nations were coming to Solomon for wisdom. It was almost like literally the golden age, a pinnacle uh, of their existence. But straight after Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam got into some trouble. The kingdom divides in two, a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom, and essentially it starts going downhill from there. And the northern kingdom, especially never had a good king, goes spiraling out of control and uh, they are exiled. They're taken out by an enemy. This is hundreds of years later, after it gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, the Assyrians take the northern kingdom, and it's kind of the tribes, the ten tribes in the northern kingdom are scattered, are gone. The southern kingdom, Judah, lasts a little bit longer. Some of the kings were good, descended from the line of David, 
but the prophets of God that God keeps saying, keep warning them, stop living like you are doing. Their hearts are no longer fully committed to God. The nation's not living under the golden age of David and Solomon. They're worshipping idols. Their hearts are going to other gods. And God is continually warning them. He's angry with them, that he's jealous for them, that they're not living for him. And so if you don't do this, the same thing's going to happen to you as happened to your brothers and sisters in the northern kingdom. The situation gets so bad for them. There's times under siege with the Babylonians where God's anger has been so great to them. The promises must have seemed so distant. The golden age was so long gone. You've literally got mothers carving up their children with each other to eat them to stay alive. That's kind of the level the nation descended into because of the idolatry, because they turned their back on God. And it was horrible, and see, many people died, famine, plague, the sword, those sort of words are repeated in the prophets time after time after time. And they indeed are exiled as well. Jerusalem falls, the Babylonians take it, and eventually it's raised to the ground, burnt, is gone. Jerusalem, the holy city, as it were, the sort of the, what encapsulated the promised land and all that God was doing, uh, the temple where they worship God, it's all gone. It's all decimated. That's it. And for 70 years, they're in exile. It must have looked hopeless. They thought it had all been going so well. They'd not listened to the prophets. The nation had been uh, deteriorating. Their relationship with God and had basically been destroyed and decimated. God was angry. What was going to happen? What was going to happen to them? Well, 70 years after they got kicked out of Israel, another leader, some of the sort of Persians called Cyrus, uh, lets them go back, sends the Jewish people that have been scattered all over this great empire back to uh, the promised land, back to Jerusalem, and they start rebuilding it. And this psalm that we're about to look at probably comes out of this time, and this is what uh, they were saying when they get there, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Zion is a poetic kind of name. Jerusalem was built on a few hills. Zion was one of the hills and it became symbolic of the city and the temple itself and even God's people. So when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations where they'd been scattered, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. They couldn't believe it. It was too good to be true. It's like, pinch me, I must be dreaming. I'd been, we'd been, and God was angry with us. He'd exiled us. Things had got so bad we hadn't followed him. He was righteously angry with us. He was just in his anger with us. We'd not followed him. We'd given up on him. We followed idols. Why would he bring us back? Why would he show compassion and mercy like us? And yet here we are. I can't believe it. We're back in the city. We're building the temple again. The walls are going up. God is on the move again. His kingdom has been established. The Jewish people are becoming a nation once more. The Lord has restored the fortunes of Zion. And literally the psalm captures, it's hard to picture for us in terms of that environment, isn't it, so many years ago, but such was the feeling of what God was doing at that time. It's, it's, like, we, it's like we're dreaming. It's like, really? I can't believe it. Something so hoped for, something so important, so longed for, seemed to be taking so long, you don't quite dare believe, do you? You think, could that really happen? I don't want to really believe that that could happen. 
that God will restore, that it will be all right in the end. It feels like it's gone so wrong. Literally, when it, when it starts dawning in them, their, their mouths filled with laughter. It's like, I can't believe it. God's done it. God's done it. We're filled with joy. It's amazing what God did for them. And of course, that's just a shadow of what God's done for us. How Jesus has restored us to God. We who were once not a people, now the people of God. We who were once dead in our sin, without hope, now alive in Christ. Our shame, our guilt gone, our fears, our insecurities dealt with, adopted in God's family, completely accepted, unconditionally loved, new creations by God's restoration. When was the last time you just laughed? God's done it. I can't believe it. He's changed me. I was a sinner. I was gone. I just, it's like, pinch me. I must be dreaming. Oh, I'm not. God's really that good. God's really that good. All the times I turned my back on him, all the times my efforts were futile and useless, surely my sin's too much from this time you come back. Oh, no. Oh, no, it's not. He's restored me again. He still loves me. I'm still in the family. I'm still full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is still my saviour. Just fantastic. Jesus told a parable. We often call it a parable of the prodigal son or two sons. He tells the story of the youngest son. Goes to the father, says, I wish you were dead. I want my money now. Goes off, blows the lot, makes a real mess of things. Thinks to himself, the situation gets so bad, well, even my servants are better in my father's house. Maybe I'll go back, I'll trudge back, I'll go back, I'll go back, I'll go back. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've blown it. I can't, surely that's the best. I can. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Could I become a servant? The father's run to him. He blurts out that language. He says, I've found my son. Puts a ring on his finger, the sandals on his feet, kills the fattened calf, the robe on him. Suddenly the son finds himself in the party. He couldn't believe it. He was hoping just to get a bit of food on the table so he wouldn't starve to death because he made such a mess of things. And the father, my son is alive. He was dead, but now he's alive. And as a celebration, you are in the party. You're in the party. Do you realize if Jesus has saved you and changed you, you're in the party now. You've been restored. It's going on right now. You've got the ring. You've got the sandals, the fattened calf. God celebrates over us. He loves us. Don't forget. Are you filled with joy? Even as uh, Anne read the psalm right at the start, I don't know what life's going on at the moment, but you're filled with joy. When was the last time? So you literally laughed. You literally stood back and went, oh my. Look at that. I can't believe it. And just laughed. Because God has done so much because he's filled you with laughter. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Just the grace and the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. Now these guys in this psalm, they, they didn't stop there. And this psalm doesn't continue, uh, interestingly you might say, with just continued praise and adoration, which would have been, of course, completely appropriate. But it turns uh, to prayer and some very different language to the sort of rejoicing and laughter. Not the blank screen. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. It's like they've looked up. It's like, pinch me the dream, look what God's doing. And they've looked at this great thing God is doing. They've looked around. 
not everyone's here. Not everyone's here. This is not the whole nation. There are people still in exile. There are people who are not back. This is partial. Lord, restore. You have restored. Now restore again. Restore our fortunes, Lord. The Negev is a desert that could get flash flooded. So it go from dry to lush very, very quickly. So it's a great picture of storm, like streams in Negev, sunny streams, rain will come the mountains, flood down into the desert, sunny life would spring up. The fortunes would be restored. Lord, will you do it for us, they were saying. They had promises again for, uh, you know, real kind of uh, sort of total restoration, you might say, they were carrying. This is uh, from uh, Isaiah, one of the prophets, prophesied in earlier times. Though he spent quite a lot of time prophesying, you better shape up or you're going to be shipped out, as I said earlier, but there was always prophecies of hope as well. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongues shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Restore our fortunes, streams in the Negev. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. And if you read the whole of that sort of uh, Isaiah 35, it's really a, almost like a revival, total restoration picture, an amazing work of God. They're looking around and going, this is only partial. It's amazing what God has done. We're filled with laughter and joy. But Lord, keep moving, keep restoring like streams in the Negev. We need to sow with tears and reap with songs of joy. There must be more to come. Even as we laugh and rejoice at what God has done, and we lift our heads up, look around and go, not everyone's here. Not everyone's here. There are those still outside God's kingdom. Those that don't know how much Jesus loves them. No, those that have not yet been restored to know everything that I've known. They have not been filled with laughter and joy. People around you, friends, family, work colleagues, neighbours, every single day. Whether what I'm filled with laughter, but there's still times to sow in tears. You know, the world around us is not perfect, is it? The kingdom of God is not fully extended. There's so much we want to see happen. Just uh, apparently in Southwark, the borough that we're in here, Every year, roughly, 30,000 crimes would be committed, 200-plus rapes, 100 gun crimes, over 1,000 robberies. It's like, restore us, O oh Lord. Restore our fortunes. UK divorce rates have apparently fallen in sort of recent times, but not by loads. 2010, I reckon 42% of marriages ended in divorce, almost half of them. I think all the heartache that causes to all parties involved, all the kids, if any, that have been involved in that. Southwark has one of the highest proportions of single-parent households in the country. It's over 7%. Every week in the church, we have people coming to our food bank. It doesn't take, you know, to be a rocket scientist to figure out why they're coming to the food bank. Because life's hit them so hard, they desperately need even just food, just food parcels for them. Going on in our nation, all around. You know, life is tough. We want to see God move, don't we? We want to see his kingdom come. A bit more of a personal story. This is not from around here, but this one just caught me. Uh, so from New York uh, Kids Club. We used to do a kids club here sort of based on their model. Uh, a girl called Ariana got off the bus and was very sullen. Metro staff member went to check and I noticed the little girl's arm was covered in blood. Staff member asked what happened, but Ariana wouldn't respond. 
when they got to Metro, Ariana was immediately taken to the first aid station. As the staff began treating her, they realised the blood was coming from bites on her arm, and it wasn't the only one. There were several bite marks. What happened? Our staff asked again. I wanted to kill myself, Ariana replied. Ariana was only six years old. It's heartbreaking to try and fathom what could cause a six-year-old to want to take their life. It's obviously quite an extreme story, at least you hope it's quite an extreme story, but there are things going on all around us that do not fill us with joy and do not make our mouths be filled with laughter, do they? Where it's appropriate to sow even with tears, even weeping. Countless people that do not yet know Jesus, whether they're in dire particular situations or not, people that are heading for an eternity without knowing his love, still stuck on the outside of the party like the older, older son was in Jesus' parable. Apparently, in some recent survey done, 40% of people in our nation aren't even convinced that Jesus was a real person, let alone knowing that he's their personal Lord and Saviour, that he loves them dearly. There are plenty of things in a sense we can weep about can't we that we want to pray for see it Spurgeon on this passage said the beginnings of mercy as in the first bit of the psalm are encouragements to us to pray for the completing of it while we are here in this world there will still be matter for prayer even when we are most furnished with matter for praise we have so much to thank God for we have so much to laugh about even whilst we can be weeping the next moment for the things we still want to see God do. Winners of souls are first weepers of souls. Jesus shed tears. During the days of, his, of, days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was heard because of his reverent submission. You read about him in Gethsemane, pouring out his heart in agony. You see him lamenting, didn't necessarily say he was actually crying, but the passion, lamenting over Jerusalem, the people not yet responding to him, turning to him. You see him weeping at Lazarus's tomb because the effects death has on people, even those about to raise him from the dead. It's a bit later, just the devastation it causes us as people around us die. We will all die. And not to, but we don't have to be without knowing Jesus. Jesus wept. This is from one of the New Testament letters, Paul, sort of great apostle. Some of his passion, as I've often told you before, now tell you again, even with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. It wasn't a matter of indifference to him. It wasn't getting hot under collar about it, at least not all the time. It was a matter for tears for him, that there would be those that still live as enemies of Jesus, that there would be those that have not yet accepted him as their, as their Lord and Saviour. So when was the last time you laughed? And when was the last time you wept? When was the last time you let God's heart touch your heart just a little bit and opened up into prayers where you wept for those that don't yet know for situations that sometimes are too horrible to even want to talk about? I mean, challenge myself thinking, how often does that happen? How often do I let God in in that way? How often will I let him use me to sow in tears? I remember when I was at university, it felt like there appears when I would quite often be literally weeping for some of my friends that uh, didn't know Jesus. And I think, how often has that happened since then? Sometimes, definitely. 
for sure, where you, yeah, you read things in the newspaper. Don't get inoculated <laughs> against those stories because there's always bad news going on. Let God's heart touch you at times. But you pray for situations and, uh, and you find yourself weeping as they become real to you and poignant to you. We are called to laugh. We are called to weep. Now, of course, you can't uh, manufacture that and in some ways it isn't about literally shedding of tears. In some ways, I think it is but that we take, we are filled with compassion. We are people of compassion that take seriously the needs of those around us, that know that we who have been so filled with joy is our seed to sow that will transform other people's lives and we desperately want people to know about it and we're praying and we're weeping and we're seeking God for that, that we do go out with our seed to sow. We don't do it hopelessly, do we? If you sow, why? It's because you expect to reap. It's because you're expecting things to change. The passage is actually incredibly hopeful. It's, it's got reaping and it goes back to joy again at the end. There's a harvest coming because the seed's gone out to sow the transformed lives, the message of what Jesus has done for us. But almost the picture, like the ground is hard. The ground can be really hard. What's going to break up the ground as we sow seed and dry hard ground? It's our tears. It's our tears because... We're serious about this because our hearts are touched because we're not indifferent. This isn't just a church activity. We do evangelism. This is because we know that we have been filled with joy and our sin is forgiven and our guilt is gone and our shame has been dealt with by Jesus. And we know people all around us don't know that, don't have that and they need to know it. We know that one day we're going to rejoice forever and eternity with him. We want people to be with us. So we go out with seed to sow and we weep. We weep whilst we wait for harvest again and again for joy. That's what we want to see, isn't it? That's what City Hope's here for in this city now, for the long haul, to see God restore our fortunes again, to see many people come to know Jesus, not just us, and one says, who cares if it's us? So long as so somebody sees reaping, somebody sees the sheaves come in as lives turn to Jesus. Isn't that what you'd love to see? So I leave you two questions. I said them a few times already. Ask yourself, when was the last time you laughed about what God's done in you? And when was the last time you wept because of all that you still want to see God do through you? We don't want to just go through mechanics, do we? We don't want to just come to church. We don't want to just say, I've become a Christian and feel like we have to. We want God to touch our lives, give us passion and compassion to make it real, to fill us with the Spirit, to give us help for these things. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back up. We're going to worship God. It's as, it's as He touches our lives that we'll be opened up to weep. We can't force it. 